a fire on the mountain burning out of control. The sky is set ablaze in all its red and gold. The temperature's rising and the wind is blowing hot. We gotta turn this ship around before we run aground. We gotta turn this ship around before we run aground. Welcome to Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXLM and FM, streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, where we are archived for your binge listening pleasure. We are a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes, where you 21st century folks can listen at any time, any place, anywhere around the world with your handy-dandy, trusty personal devices or computers. What a world we live in. Well, I'm flying solo today, and I wanted to talk about impeachment and what has happened this week for President Trump, because it may be that President Trump, Humpty Dumpty, has hit the wall, and oh my goodness, Humpty Dumpty may be prepared for a great fall, because in the annals of American history, the Recent testimony by Ambassador William Taylor may go down as one of those historic moments in America when a diplomat, a 50-year career diplomat, uh, a man who served in Vietnam, who was an infantry officer, a man who has served different administrations, Republicans and Democrats, decided to come to Capitol Hill and tell the truth. Now... In the old days, telling the truth seemed to be the name of the game. It seemed to be what, you know, what government, good government was about. You, you told the truth because there was truth and there were facts and that mattered. It mattered in America and still should that people tell the truth. People of integrity, people of honor, people of ethics, people who put country above self, people who put country above party. Stand up and tell the truth. And in this case, uh, Ambassador Taylor testified for 10 hours behind closed doors to the Intelligence Committee, whose members emerged shaken, not stirred, well, stirred and shaken, by the testimony they'd heard, because Ambassador Taylor clearly had uh, laid down the law. He had, in other words, told the truth about what had happened, and he was the fellow who really knew what had happened. He had talked to the players and witnessed on the ground what happened in the Ukraine with President Trump's shadow effort, his behind-the-scenes effort, his off-the-books record, his off-the-record effort to basically blackmail a foreign country into helping him uh, get dirt on a political rival. It's illegal. It's criminal. It may be, could it be called treason? Well, not exactly, because he wasn't out to help the Ukraine. So in this case, it's merely criminal. Um, But the uh, Washington Post uh, did some reporting on this, and some of what I want to read or talk about is is taken from uh, their excellent reporting. 
Um, and it tells the story in uh, their recent article of Ambassador William Taylor looking out over the front lines of Ukraine's war with the Russian-backed separatists last July. So July of 2019, uh, Ambassador Taylor is in the Ukraine looking at the damage that had been done by an armed and hostile enemy, the Russians, who had annexed Crimea, who were fighting the Ukrainians, who were dependent on the United States for military support in their fight against Russia. Um, Taylor had taken the job of acting U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, and he was very reluctant about it because he he said in his opening statement and uh, anticipated that he said it in his testimony that he had gotten assurances from Secretary Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, in late May that President Trump was committed to helping uh, Ukraine hold off the forces that were armed and funded uh, by Moscow, who had besieged the country for five years. And here we are in July, and Taylor found himself doubting his country's intentions because uh, while the administration's official policy was to support a young and struggling democracy uh, and ba- that was battling Russian aggression, it was becoming increasingly clear to Taylor that there was something else entirely going on. There was there were there was a fundamentally um, different scenario that was being played by a group of actors uh, in which uh, Trump and a number of his allies were withholding what the Ukraine needed uh, and what Congress had voted and authorized uh, almost four hundred dollars in desperately needed four hundred million dollars in in desperately needed military aid. And Trump was working to withhold that money in exchange for political favors to benefit his reelection campaign. Now, Taylor saw this building for weeks. Remember that Ivanovich, um, his predecessor, had been recalled from Kiev under questionable circumstances uh, a few days before uh, going to uh, visit the front lines in the Ukraine. Taylor had received a report that the $391 million in military aid was being held up until Ukraine's new president committed to investigations that would help Trump. And he couldn't get a readout on a call that had taken place on July 25th between Trump and Ukrainian President Zelensky. Remember, that is the conversation that triggered the extraordinary whistleblower complaint uh, that Um, uh, also produced the new impeachment inquiry uh, to threaten the presidency of Trump. And ultimately, Taylor uh, would end up before a congressional committee telling his story. Um, This is a guy who had been tapped as early as 2006 by President Bush to serve as ambassador to UK, U- Ukraine. He had retired from the State Department. He had been brought back in against his wife's better judgment to uh, step in again as the, um, uh, uh, to, to help uh, stand for the Trump administration in uh, the Ukraine. And he found this to be a brave new world uh, because he began to detect signs of an irregular and informal quote-unquote diplomatic channel competing with his own and a secret agenda for U.S. policy. Um, So among the clues 
were uh, other diplomats who told him that Trump wanted to hear from Zelensky, but it wasn't clear what it was about. Late in June, he got an explanation from Gordon Sundland, the wealthy Trump donor who had been named U.S. ambassador to the European Union, who told him the president wanted assurances from the Ukrainian president that he would not stand in the way of investigations. And then there were odd statements about and from Giuliani, who uh, who was pursuing meetings with officials in the Ukraine. And now we know, folks, that Giuliani was employing two Ukrainian or Russian operatives, Lev and Igor, who also had been in the employ from time to time, it appears, of a Ukrainian oligarch named Furtash, who was close to Putin. So you've got this crazy Putin, Furtash, operatives, Giuliani collection, who ended up working with Trump, Pompeo, William Barr, Kurt Volker, and Sundland, to name a few, I may have left some people out, on this back-channel effort to pressure the Ukraine to conduct investigations or say they were conducting investigations of Biden in order to get the military aid that Trump was withholding that aid until he had assurances that the investigations weren't going on. Taylor was so troubled by all the craziness that that he was experiencing, that he reported the conversation to Deputy Assistant Secretary of State George Kent, who also has testified. He put his concerns in a memo, which are probably somewhere in the State Department files that Pompeo uh, uh, is still holding on to and won't turn over, um, and demanded to, and, and, and asked Pompeo what was going on. He never got an answer. Um, in July, on the 18th of July, before Trump's July 25th call, Taylor heard somebody from the Office of Management and Budget on a on a video conference call with the White House saying that she'd been instructed not to allow any additional military aid to flow until further notice. Um, so we have the removal of the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine in May. We have Giuliani's public comments about Kiev conspiracy theories. We have the military aid being held up. We have Uh, National Security Advisor Bolton trying to get a meeting with Trump to raise the issues, which never happened until September, and then Bolton was gone. And all of this is being done as an end run around Mr. Taylor, the ambassador, trying to fulfill official government policies. Now, what Bolton and others saw in Sondland and what Sondland was saying was a clear reference to Trump's desire to have Ukrainian authorities dig up dirt on former Vice President Joe Biden and his son, Hunter. And Trump was determined to have Zelensky pursue some discredited conspiracy theory involving Democratic computer services service, servers supposedly being hidden in Ukraine, an, an alternative reality to the Russian interference in the U.S. elections. You see, what Trump does is he peddles the most absurd the craziest, darkest theories in order to obscure reality, to bend the truth, to hide the facts. And that's what is going on here. And that, in large part, is what is going to all come out in this impeachment inquiry. So as Ambassador Taylor tried to decipher the puzzling developments that were also increasingly worrying Ukrainian officials, 
On the 25th of July, Trump has this call with Zelensky. We've seen 10 pages of what should have been a 35-page transcript. We know we have the whistleblower's complaint showing that there was essentially a plot, a conspiracy, with Trump. Pompeo was in on the calls. Barr and Giuliani were in on this. Volker and Sondland, apparently the envoys and uh, helpers were in on this. Rick Perry, the energy secretary, was in on this. He has since resigned. Uh, And the whole deal was to put pressure on the Ukrainian president to say that he would do some trumped up, and I use that term advisedly, trumped up investigation of Hunter and Joe Biden in order to satisfy the president's personal political itch to scratch that itch that Trump has to get at his personal political allies because Trump is Trump and Trump is operating the way he always did. No rules apply. He can do whatever he wants to do. And what this may have been is this is the equivalent of his saying I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and get away with it. And he probably thought he could get away with this too. Well, folks, maybe this time he's gone too far. Maybe this time it won't work. Maybe the idea of calling on a foreign government to cooperate in going after his personal political allies with a corrupt motive Maybe this will be too much for the Republicans in the Senate. Maybe this is the straw that breaks the camel's back. We can only hope. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the Internet, archived at nhtalkradio.com for your binge listening pleasure. Don't go away. We'll be back after a short break, and we're going to talk with Matt Robeson of AmorePerfectUnionForum.com about the 2020 race and about the position that Democrats find themselves in. Don't go away. Welcome back to Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXLAM and FM, streaming live over the internet and archived at nhtalkradio.com for your binge listening pleasure. We're also a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes, and I am thrilled to be joined during this heavy news cycle time by Matt Robeson, the proprietor of a great blog, a moreperfectunionforum.com, an observer of all things political, now becoming a frequent guest because there's so much to talk about. Matt, welcome back to Off the Record. Has anything happened in the last five minutes since we started recording? Uh, you know, I, I don't know. It's it's possible that something has happened because thing, the news is coming so thick and fast. Um, I was watching Rachel Maddow last night, and uh, uh, she, you know, her 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 program was interrupted repeatedly by her saying, "Wait, we've got breaking news! Don't go away!" Now that's a convenient way to keep people coming back after the break, but it also happens to be a time of incredible breaking news. Uh, We've got the impeachment inquiry going hot and heavy. 
uh, in the House with some pretty sensational testimony from a former uh, consul for to Kiev, uh, Mr. Taylor, and uh, there's lots of other things going on. What's happening in your world? Just trying to keep up. Um, you know, obviously there's there's a lot going on. I think that it's interesting sort of the way the uh, race is shaping up on the Democratic side, um, sort of as a almost a backdrop uh, to what's going on with impeachment. There's been a heck of a lot of jockeying going on among the Democrats, as well as a story in the New York Times tomorrow, uh, today, actually, that, that seems to really uh, resonate with the feeling I'm picking up from Democrats, which is there's a lot of nervousness. There's a lot of, are we sure that we've got someone um, that can take down Trump? So it's uh, it, it's a very fluid time in, in, in politics right now. Well, let's let's look look at that for a moment, because aren't Democrats always nervous? Uh, it seems to me to be um, a repeat uh, of other cycles that we've seen where Democrats have a primary and all of a sudden everybody gets nervous because things don't seem to be resonating the way they should. The front runners are fading. The long shots are long. The Middle tier is, you know, doing what it's doing. This year, of course, we started with 20, how many? 23, 24. I've lost lost count. Now the debate stage most recently only had 12. There are still people in the race who didn't make the debate stage who are not getting out or certainly not announcing they've gotten out, actively campaigning. Folks like Delaney and Williamson and others who are actively campaigning. There are folks like... Booker who is, and Beto O'Rourke, who are not in double digits, Kamala Harris not in double digits, all actively campaigning. Democrats are nervous. Things are jockeying between Warren and Sanders and Biden. But uh, my recollection is, for example, in I think it was 2004, uh, I recall a late entry from a General Wesley Clark into the race because Democrats were nervous. That didn't seem to go anywhere. Who knows if the nervousness is well-placed or not well-placed? I think Democrats are looking and always looking for some kind of affair of the heart that leaps. So somebody who makes their heart go pitter-pat, somebody who elevates their sense of inevitability, uh, a champion of whatever whatever type uh, for the times who can overcome the evil that lurks in the White House. Look, I, as usual, I think you're 100% right on this. I mean, there's a historic pattern here. This is nothing new for people who suspect that they've seen this movie before on the Democratic side. You're right. If you look over the last 50 years of Democratic presidential primaries, you always see a gritty underdog comeback story So, I mean, just go all the way back to 1971. About this point in 1971, George McGovern, the eventual nominee, was at 5% in the polls. In 1975, Jimmy Carter was at 1% in the polls. 1987, Mike Dukakis, 7.5% in the polls over the summer. Bill Clinton, 1.7%. And then, of course, you, uh, Paul, were part of the best comeback story uh, in recent memory, which was Barack Obama, 26 points down as late as December of 2007 in Iowa. And insiders on that campaign really credited you with giving a, a 
boost of energy and momentum over the summer. So um, there is always this process. I do think that on, in this particular primary, um, it's sort of on steroids. This feels like the Princess Bride primary where voters are <laughs> looking at the goblets of wine in front of them and saying, clearly I can't choose the one in front of you. Clearly I can't choose the one in front of me. There's a little bit of a shell game happening, the old-fashioned shell game. Where's Who's got the pea under the shell? Which one is it going to be when I pick it up? That one seems empty, but wait a second, that's sleight of hand, because maybe that's just because I'm not looking in the right place or looking at the right thing. And and through it all, by the way, uh, this is no easy, this is not an easy contest for Democrats. Um, they they Democrats would do well to be really, really, really concerned about whether or not any Democratic nominee can uh, beat Donald Trump. It's a real I think it's a it's a real it's a real question mark. Uh, absolutely. I, you know, there is um, and we can talk later about sort of the impeachment polling and what that tells us about the political story. This is what we, we touched on last time. But I do think that since we last spoke, when we've seen um, uh, uh, the first Democratic primary debate with Elizabeth Warren as the co-frontrunner or frontrunner, um, you've really begun to see a, a reckoning start to unfold on the Democratic side. And it's not that surprising that the flashpoint is really over health care. Um, it's consistently, if you look at polling, you know, public opinion surveys broad, broadly over the last 20, 30 years, health care is always right at the top. It's, it's completely intertwined with people's views of economic issues, how economic issues impact their lives. And in 2018, Democrats ran a health care-centered uh, campaign and won and generated a blue wave. So um, it's the most important issue in the primary as a policy issue. It may be the most important issue in the general. And there are some differences, and, and you can really see uh, the candidates starting to try to separate themselves into swim lanes based on how they define themselves around health care. You know, just to put this in a little bit of context, um, somebody I know who at this point will remain anonymous sent me some polling. Now, I can't tell you how accurate this polling is or isn't, but it takes New Hampshire as a representative state and looks at Trump approval, disapproval rating. And this is just to put in context the discussion we can have about health care. Because this map is, uh, I'm looking at, at four different graphics. The first graphic is Trump approval, disapproval across all parties, with Democrats, with Republicans, and then with nonpartisan. And I'll, it's no surprise that looking at this map with Democrats, with the highest density of the, of the map showing the population in the lower right corner of New Hampshire, we have... Uh, approval for, of Democrats of 1.17 percent, actually 1.8 percent. We'll give the president a little bit more. So 98.8 percent of Democrats disapprove of Trump. That is no surprise. On the Republican side, it's basically reversed. But 
there's only a 0.6% disapproval. He's approved, according to these this, these numbers, by 99.4%. Completely partisan approval, disapproval, as you would expect in this hyper-partisan era. When I look at the nonpartisan or independent vote, it's very interesting because it's much closer. But still, the approval for the president, at least according to this, comes out at 50.4 with the disapprove at 49.6. So he's a little bit ahead with the nonpartisans. And then when you put it all together, given the fact that there appear to be a there appears to be an advantage uh, for registration among Republicans, Trump, at least in this map, comes out with an approval of 52.2 versus his disapproval at 47.8. That means if New Hampshire is this close, and remember how close it was last time, it's got to be awfully close, really, in probably a big swath of this country, a really, really big swath of this country. And because health care is such an important issue, and it's in such flux now with um, a decision uh, from an appeals court pending as to whether or not we'll have Obamacare in place or not, with the Democrats uh, talking really in, 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 at, at each other and in some ways at each other's throats over a very, very uh, large investment in, quote, Medicare for all, whatever that means, versus a, quote, public option, whatever that means, the lanes for Democrats uh, to push towards trying to capture the voters who may matter most in this election, those who are perhaps genuinely upset but uh, don't really know where to turn a pox on both your houses, you parties, Uh, What's a poor Democrat to do about health care? What does that mean when I read that people are talking about a Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren ticket, doubling down on Medicare for all, when some of the polling that I've seen, Matt, and you can stand, you can correct me if I'm wrong, suggests that not everybody in the United States is thrilled with the idea of this socialized medicine. And I say that in a low, menacing tone because that's the way it's often pitched, socialized medicine. When I was running for the U.S. Senate in my in the race that I got clobbered in, I, I remember walking into a diner and talking to somebody who said, I don't want any government socialized takeover of my health care. And I just just you make sure that the government keeps its hand off my Medicare. Yeah, right, and uh, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, um, you know, including uh, food stamps. And Well, so, look, there are two big issues here, and um, we, we, can take, we can take our pick of where to go first. One is, um, how is the election shaping up? And the second is, you know, what about health care's role in it? Um, I'll just say on the first one, because, you know, there's a lot more we could unpack there, that yeah, you know, I think there was a burst of optimism from Democrats a few weeks ago when Pelosi announced the beginning of the impeachment inquiry, and initially polls began to move in the direction of a little bit more support. You saw some consolidation from Democrats in support of impeachment, but 
um, there have been some real notes of caution getting sounded over the last week, and um, they're worth paying attention to. Donald Trump has more cash on hand at this point, nearly twice as much as Barack Obama did at the same point in the 2012 cycle. And Barack Obama was a historically great fundraiser. Well, that's a problem. You're seeing impeachment support polling level out at about the president's overall approval rating, which goes to the point that you and I talked about last time. He has a floor under his level of disapproval that's very hard for him to break below. Um, that's point number two. Um, he's lapping the field. He's lapping all the Democrats when it comes to online advertising. There was a big piece of the New York Times about that last week. That's point number three. Um, so, you know, you, you put it all together, and there's actually been a, 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 some rumbling going on in political pundit circles over the last week that, you know, if, if things keep on this track, there's a real outcome where, you know, Trump may get inoculated by getting acquitted in an impeachment trial, and then we see a replay of 2016 where he ekes one out in the Electoral College. Um, I mean, I'll stop there, but and we can turn to the health care piece of that, but yeah, that is a real concern. We're going to take a little break. This is Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM, streaming live at nhtalkradio.com, where you can find all our shows archived. We're a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. I'm talking with Matt Robeson, the guy who writes the blog, moreperfectunionforum.com, essential reading for anybody who's interested in politics. Matt is one smart guy. We're talking about the 2020 elections. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back after this. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL, AM and FM, streamed live over the Internet at nhtalkradio.com, archived there for your binge-listening pleasure. And we're a, a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. So you can get those thumbs moving over your little personal digital devices, plug in the headphones, or Bluetooth your way to Radio Bliss, listening to all our shows podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. I'm talking with Matt Robeson, who authors a moreperfectunionforum.com, a blog about politics and the undercurrents, the real story about what's going on underneath that drives the news and drives the polls, but is frequently not thought about. Matt is a thoughtful guy who digs down and gets into what really matters. He's been a frequent guest on off the record, because he's not only a great pal, but really smart about things I really care about. So, Matt, let's turn to the health care question. That seems to be a big driver for Democrats. In the, po- in the debates, the moderators have generally led with health care and spent anywhere from half an hour to 45 minutes of whatever the debates have been talking about the intricacies or non-intricacies of what the candidates' health care plans and proposals and thoughts are. 
with uh, trying to expose differences and giving the candidates, at least on the Democratic side, a chance to food fight each other about whether or not their health care plan will work, whether it's affordable, whether people want it, whether it'll be Trump, whether anybody cares at all. Um, what's your take? What's going on? Well, you definitely saw in the debate last week a big uh, uh, flashpoint, a fight over Medicare for all, um, with the biggest issue emerging out of the debate being Senator Warren's tactically smart refusal to uh, say that her plan would raise taxes. Now, you re- that's, this generated a lot of uh, discussion after the debate, and you recognize um, from your experience in, in debate that what she did was actually very tactically smart. It's sort of a Hippocratic oath in debate prep. You first do no harm, and the last thing you want to do is get caught on video taking a position, admitting to a position that you don't want and that can be repeated and used to beat you over the head for the remainder of the campaign. So very smart. But um, you also saw a real surge for Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg after the debate, both in fundraising um, and in polling. A new poll out in Iowa showing uh, Buttigieg surging into third. Um, And so it seems like this issue really is creating traction for more moderate Democrats who are nervous, um, and they find this Medicare for All issue to be um, the epicenter of their nervousness about a Warren candidacy. Um, so it's it, it's something that's going to continue to play out over over the next few weeks. She looks like she's going to uh, continue to to dig in on her approach. I actually think. Um, if she's planning to zig, I think she should zag and, and go the other way with it. You know, the the part of the reluctance, I think, in the last debate of the candidates to get specific about what their plans cost, and of course, as you point out, tactically in a debate, it's not it's a smart thing for any candidate to do not to get not to get pinned down, leave themselves some running room, put one foot here, one foot there, bounce up and down. Uh, you know, make float like a butterfly and then try to sting like a bee on something else. One of the reasons that that was so important, I think, for somebody like Elizabeth Warren was that the very next day after the debate, the Urban Institute, a left-leaning think tank, which has over the years done an awful lot of work at trying to dig into the complex issue of health care and come up with some idea of what different plans and proposals cost and what their consequences will be, actually tried to come up with a look at the costs for Medicare for All proposal as proposed by the Bernie Elizabeth wing of the party. And they they estimated that the cost, and I'm and I'll put aside the question about whether it's a worthy investment and where it would come from and how it would happen and what would be the savings and all that. But the cost, the investment that people talked about necessary, uh, according to the Ehrman Institute, was in the neighborhood of $30 trillion. Now, that came in the context of a national debt, which we now have, of twenty. trillion, an annual deficit, especially after the Trump tax cut, uh, of a trillion dollars a year, adding to that debt burden. And people are, I think, 
very uh, are concerned that as salutary and beneficial as Medicare for all might be, not only is selling it to the American public still a job because frankly, nobody really knows what it means. It's easy to explain in simplistic terms that it simply means, well, we're going to have one payer and that's the government. Everything else will pretty much stay the same. You get to go to your doctor, you get to go to the hospital, um, and everybody's got to negotiate with the government. We're going to lower drug prices by bringing back negotiation for the government. But still, if the Urban Institute's numbers are right, that's a massive investment. That That is a a massive investment. Now, it's not all in one year, obviously. It's an investment over, let's say, 10 years. And uh, it's, it's, it raises real questions. Now, the counter to that, and this has been led by some economists out of Berkeley, is that, yes, it's, uh, it, it looks like a costly investment at first blush. But right now, since Americans are paying huge, huge sums to private insurers for this multi-payer, uh, supposedly, market system of health care. We're simply moving dollars from one place to the other, and that in investment of $30 trillion really becomes, uh, it, 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 it changes the nature of that investment because people will no longer be uh, paying the way they're paying. They're just going to be paying in a different way for something that's easier, simpler, and will cover everybody. So this debate is a very, very lively debate from the economic standpoint, let alone from the moral standpoint and the question of coverage. So, uh, and I don't know that anybody on the debate stage has really been able to explain in a clear way why the Medicare for all is going to be better, uh, why, why it matters, what the, what the effect is. Because one of the problems that I see for politicians, and I experienced it myself when I was in office, was a reluctant reluctance to, to talk about raising taxes. Bernie Sanders is pretty clear. Yes, you're going to pay more in taxes, but you're going to pay less in health care. And that's the best argument that uh, anybody could make for Medicare for all is you're paying through the nose now. The, the, the mythical you is paying through the nose now. You're going to be paying in a different way, but even with tax increases, you'll be paying less. And then you run up against the Urban Institute's numbers and they're if anybody reads them, there's real pause there for Democrats, especially because so much of the country still has a visceral kind of knee-jerk reaction to the notion of the government taking over the health care system. Yeah, I tend to have a, a pretty strong view on this one, um, you know, as a Democrat, which is I think Medicare for all is an albatross. I think it's a sinkhole. Um, just a terrible mistake. And look, you know, you pointed out some of the substantive numbers. I'll just start with the polling numbers. Um, you know, proponents of Medicare for All will say, well, it, it gets 70% approval in, in polling that we see. But that's before you actually dig in. It, it, if voters understand that it's the same thing as single-payer, which in any real-life campaign they certainly do, 
support drops to 48%. As soon as they recognize that it also involves a tax increase, doesn't matter about the complicated, oh, but your costs go down, you know, you're, you're kind of waving your hands around, support drops to 34%. Now, that is pretty low uh, for a policy proposal in America today. Um, it's, uh, it, it's a real tough sell. You know, some of the other things that are buried in that Urban Institute study, which, by the way, for people who are interested in this topic, and it is a critical topic, there's a terrific new podcast called Trade-Offs that I, I just wrote an article about. Um, and for New Hampshire listeners, it, it comes from a familiar voice, Dan Gorenstein, who used to be with New Hampshire Public Radio uh, and then went to Marketplace uh, with NPR for a number of years, um, does this podcast on, on health care. Um, but within the, the Urban Institute numbers, there's all kinds of uh, stuff that Democrats should be really nervous about. One of the principal differences between Medicare for All, as proposed by uh, Sanders and Warren, and Pete Buttigieg's Medicare for All Who Want It, is who gets covered. And the big difference of who gets covered is 7 million undocumented immigrants. Now, we could debate whether it's a good idea, and probably... Medically, it is a good idea to cover 7 million undocumented immigrants. Politically, we all know that that is a very, very tough uh, conversation to have with the American public. And by and large, politically, voters agree with the Buttigieg, Klobuchar, Biden approach of let's take this one step at a time. You were in the midst of this fight when we fought the ACA 10 years ago. It's all about a public option. Give people a choice and let the system evolve toward the longer-term vision that Warren has. That seems like a much smarter path, and the voters seem to be saying this week in the wake of the debate, yeah, we kind of agree with that. So what's a good Democrat to do? Do you buy, Matt Robeson, that the current crop of candidates is too weak to take on Donald Trump? I do think that each of them has a knock. Um, but, I, you know, it's obviously too long a list to really get into um, sort of the merits and demerits of all of them, um, or to say whether there's some white knight in shining armor out there who, you know, might come in and, and be um, better across the board. I do think, though, that there are, um, that there are, opportunities here. Take uh, our co-front runner, uh, Elizabeth Warren. I think, for example, on this Medicare for All, she could view it as an opportunity. If she were, I know this is scary in politics, but if she were to come out over the next couple of weeks and say, you know what, I still believe in my plan as the long-term vision. That's where we need to go as a country, and that's what I believe in, that's my principle. But I know it's a long road to get there. And in the meantime, I support the Pete Buttigieg plan. I support the Joe Biden plan. Where's the downside there? What's the attack? Thank you for adopting my plan. She would send a very powerful signal to moderate Democrats about her flexibility, that maybe she's not quite so scary as, as an alternative. Um, she would send a signal long-term to swing voters. And, you know, I, I, I just close on the thought from a highly respected political operative who you and I know well, Tom King, who always used to say, voters don't care if you flip-flop as long as you end up in the right place. 
this would very clearly be the right place for someone like Elizabeth Warren to end up. So I don't know if there's someone uh, outside who could come in who would be clearly better, but I do think there are opportunities for some of the candidates already in the field to strengthen themselves and separate well, Matt Robeson, you're one smart guy, and you've just sent a stiletto through the ribcage of progressive voters with the idea that Elizabeth Warren, who has been one of the leading exponents of Medicare for All, might flip her flop, might flop her flip, and come up with some different way to say, you know, folks, I'm backing off this Medicare for all plan because I've read the polls and I want to be your president. And it seems like most people don't really like what I'm pitching. The woo that I'm pitching doesn't seem to be wooing the pitchies. So I'm listening to the pitchies and maybe it's time to try and end run. The middle is stacked up with linebackers. I've got the ball, and I just think I'm going to head for the sidelines. What a fascinating twist that would be. And hanging over it all is the prospect that maybe there won't be a President Trump to run against. Maybe President Trump and his cabinet and cabal of, of hapless colleagues will have been found out and maybe the Republican statesmen in the Senate will rise to the task and see that it's time for him to go. So hanging over the health care debate is this impeachment inquiry. It makes for a lot of good radio, but a pretty challenging time for America. I've been talking with Matt Robeson here on Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, archived there for your binge listening pleasure. Matt, as always, it's been a fascinating little bit of time. Let's do it again soon. Sounds great. Okay, see you later. We'll be back with more Off the Record after this. Don't go away. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM. Streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com. And we're a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. Well, I ran solo in my first segment and uh, using some reporting from the Washington Post to try to put two and two together about what was going on with Ambassador Taylor's absolutely stunning testimony before the Congressional Intelligence Committee, putting all the pieces together about the plot by President Trump and his henchmen to undermine American security by basically handing Ukraine to the Russians, by basically using blackmailing the Ukrainian president, bribing him, blackmailing him uh, with, to withhold uh, military aid until the president of the Ukraine uh, helped the president uh, take down a personal political rival. Something that's, by the way, illegal. It's a high crime. It's a misdemeanor. And he's going to get impeached for it. Uh, and then we talked to Matt Robeson about still the challenges and, that Democrats face with all this going on. So the only thing I'll say now is uh, reporting from my Dasha deep in the earth in the bunker at WKXL. Dos vidanya, comrades. Don't worry. 
This is Comrade Putin. Soon we take over Ukraine. We take over entire Near East. We have uh, ways. You know, we have our puppet in the White House. Uh, we have President Trumpetinsky. Comrade, Comrade Donald Trumpetinsky. Very, very good man to me. Vladimir Putin. I sign up. So, from Vladimir and me, we say so long. See you later. It's Paul Hodes off the record on WKXLAM and FM. Streamed live over the internet. We'll be back next week with more Off the Record.